This podcast is supported by Bank Australia, Australia's first customer-owned bank. Bank Australia invests 4% of its after-tax profits in projects that benefit people, our communities and the planet. To find out more, go to bankost.com.au, where you bank every day makes a difference. I think one of the great things with poetry that is heightened and it is emotive is that it transcends the rigid political rhetoric that you often find. If you're going to make the choice to write uh, non-fiction and especially kind of memoir-based stuff, you're, you're, you're making the committed choice that you're going to say everything. Hi, I'm Diane Cotter from Dumbo Feather magazine and you're listening to the Dumbo Feather podcast, a monthly series where we chat with inspiring, thought-provoking guests who are doing their bit to make the world better. This month, we're bringing you two conversations from this time last year, when we parked the Dumbo Feather Caravan up at Federation Square and chatted with writers from the Melbourne Writers' Festival. First up is British poet and educator Anthony Anaxagoru, a man who thinks deeply about the power of each word he uses and the importance of being vulnerable. Then we have Neil Strauss, New York Times best-selling author of The Game, a book on pickup artistry with tactics that don't sit well with us, but which led him to some pretty big realisations about himself and what makes a healthy relationship. Here's Anthony. He's speaking with our editor Nathan Scalaro before a small audience in the caravan. And just a heads up, these conversations were recorded in the middle of Melbourne City, so there's a bit more background noise than usual. Sorry for that. Welcome, thanks for joining us Thanks, man. Um, such an interesting career you've had so far and I, I, I wanted you to start by giving us some context around when you first discovered spoken word poetry which is your medium and your, your tool and um, when you discovered it as a, as, a, as a tool for change as well because you, you're using it to have an impact in the world well that's the idea yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I, I didn't actually know you could write kind of free verse poetry um, up until I was about 27, 28. So I always was under the assumption that poetry had to rhyme um, and that it had to be in very kind of strict form. Um, and if it wasn't doing that, it was rap or coming something, songwriting, lyrical writing, things like this. So when I kind of discovered books, I think obviously I was maybe my early 20s and I, I, I stumbled across Rumi and Khalil Gibran's The Prophet. I think they're one of the two, like Rumi and oh, Khalil Gibran's the third biggest selling book in the English language after the Bible and Shakespeare. Wow. So he goes through all the different aspects of the human condition and encapsulates them in this real poetic, like real, real, real poetic form. And it's very accessible, it's very rich, and it's almost timeless. Like he wrote that in the 1930s because he was a Christian from Lebanon that went to America and he wrote it there. So. Yeah, that's a really popular book. So I read that and I was like, wow, this is absolutely amazing. And hip-hop was becoming more and more commercial. Um, ja Rule started singing, things were just getting bad on the hip-hop. <laughs> um, and, and it was becoming more misogynistic, more homophobic, more like the bravado that was kind of jingo. I was just like, I can't do this anymore, I'm too old. So, um, so who'd you been engaging in hip-hop and rap? Yeah, so yeah, from the age of maybe 12 to 18, 19. You were? Yeah, and folk as well. My parents just like Fleetwood Mac, Simon and Garfunkel, like there was a lot of that going, the reggae music going around the house. 
Um, so I'm from North London originally. I was born and raised there. My parents, my parents are from Cyprus. Um, my grandparents migrated to London when Cyprus was still a British colony in 1957. Um, so I kind of went through the roads with that. And then when I started to find this kind of writing, Pablo Neruda, Octavio Paz, uh, Federico Lorca, like the Spanish surrealists, I became really excited by that style of writing because I couldn't understand it and it and it was massively surreal and it was like you know you've just done a bag of drugs and you're reading something and nothing really makes any sense but it kind of does at the same time and I didn't understand symbolism and association and what language can do if it's shifted into different contexts so I became really fascinated by that and I guess over the years that really honed my way of, of writing and I kind of worked out a voice and then I wrote a book in 2009 I was unemployed for a long period um, and obviously unemployment brings with it boredom so the only way to really uh, keep myself entertained was to write about how bored and how frustrating it is not being able to have a job even if you're applying to work in a kitchen or a warehouse or whatever it might be so I wrote that book there got it printed with the money I was on the dole so I got 500 printed up and my girlfriend at the time was like cool you did a book taking you a year well done <laughs> now how are you going to sell it and I was like, this is true I never really thought about this um, and it, you know well, no, no, no one knows who you are no one's going to buy a book so I just thought I could make a little website and people would just buy the book but is it a book of poetry it or? was a book of poetry and okay. essays yeah short stories all speaking and essays, to this right. mundanity of absolutely what you're it's called card not accepted I decided oh, I need to maybe I need to maybe start going to open mic nights and reading them out. I was very shy. I was, didn't really know what performance meant. I always thought performance was a loud thing. You know, you have to throw yourself around, become animated, raise your voice, sound persuasive. Um, and yeah, when I started doing that, I was very nervous. But people, like one or two people would buy the book. And I was like, oh, this is how you have to do it. You have to actually just go out there and make yourself known. And yeah, from that point onwards, I just kept writing books. Um, but the poems are written for spoken word or for No, see, to... see, the thing is, I struggle with this, the differentiation between spoken word, which is a very new way of defining poetry, and poetry itself, um, traditionalist poetry, page poetry, whatever you want to stage, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. I'm under the, I, my contention is that the term spoken word was is a journalistic term that was invented in the late 80s to try and rebrand poetry because it felt it wasn't cool anymore everyone just associated poetry wh Auden, t.s Eliot, ted hughes like dead white guys basically so uh, it got to the point where i was like right how do we then make it cool and accessible and open again so slam poetry was obviously birthed in chicago in the 80s and from that you got this very performative kind of thespian style of doing poetry where it was a lot more um, of a hybrid art form that fused rap, jazz, blues, gospel, um, even religious um, oration was thrown in there as well. Um, so all the different styles from the last hundred years were thrown in there. W.H. Auden um, memorised all his poems and performed them in front of 70, 80 people at a time. Nobody ever called him a spoken word artist. <laughs> so, you know, it goes, and that was in the 60s. Allen Ginsberg did the same thing. So it's, it's interesting to kind of see the, kind of the evolution that it, the term and the word poet and what that actually means that but, it's taken. And, and what did the performance element bring to your poetry when you started performing them? Did your poetry change? Did you... Yeah, yeah, for sure. Like you kind of, you really connect with an audience. You realise that when you're performing, you only have 
one opportunity to galvanize and to connect with an audience um, whereas with a book they can take it home and you can be abstract and yeah. you can be more dense because they can revisit the idea of the revisit doesn't exist when it's a live performance so you have to find a particular poetic that doesn't patronize the audience but doesn't challenge them too hard to the point where they don't want to work for the poem so it's trying to find that middle ground um, but I believe once they find a thread, people aren't stupid and they come to poetry wanting to be challenged. So once they find a thread and they can connect with, I guess, the context of the piece, they're willing to stay with it, providing it's accessible and they can see themselves in it. Hmm. Tell us about some of the issues that you're exploring in your poetry. Well, these are, I mean, at the moment, I, I was pretty troubled as a kid, but I think who isn't, you know? Um, at the moment I'm cool like my life is fine like it's not problematic I don't wake up to famine or you know I don't have RPGs in my face you know my family are all here the house is warm there's food in the fridge like my 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 reality is fine so I choose to concern myself with with issues outside of my own reality and um, the world is in a very messed up place at the moment and America you know it's tumultuous like the way in which things are moving politically so a lot of my writing over the past maybe eight nine years has been focused on on political commentary uh, some people call it iconoclastic some people call it anti-establishment counterculture maybe it is all of those things all I know is that there's a lot of injustice in the world and I'm going to write about that so people can call it what they want um, I'm not really that bothered so yeah that's kind of what I made it my mm. mission to I had a listen to one of your poems the other day with um, a colleague of mine mm. this is not a poem oh yeah which is very powerful, and it's speaking to what you just mentioned. You're, com- you're speaking from a place of privilege yeah. um, and removing yourself as a poet mm. um, from the observations you're making about all the injustice yeah. of the world. Speak to us. I didn't quite articulate that properly, but speak to us about that poem because I think it's really reflective of, yeah, of what uh, you're doing. I mean, it's interesting. People obviously assume that poetry has a very specific function, and within that function, it's not allowed to really shift and challenge, and it's not allowed to be adversarial or polemical so my thing was to try and subvert what a poem should and shouldn't do and who it should be for when you I do a lot of teaching in schools I do a lot of lecturing at universities so it's always interesting to see how people respond to what they traditionally think is a poem and what it should and shouldn't do so I decided to write this piece as a way of saying there are some things that are bigger than poetry Mm. you know to try and create this almost ironic piece where you're actually performing a poem whilst professing not to perform a poem yet the audience are able to see wait this is actually so powerful yeah yeah it's just saying these issues are too big to contain in poetry and we can't understand absolutely we can't make sense of them yeah we can't we can't make them valid I think yeah and sometimes words don't do justice to to the gravity of what is actually happening and so is this a contradiction you're living with in yourself absolutely yeah yeah. I mean we I'm I'm complicit in systems of oppression because I live in England and in British foreign policy is disgusting so you know I I fill up my car with petrol that goes towards bombing brown people in the Middle East so you know I have to be aware of the privilege that I live with but within that system I'm doing my best to dismantle things that I can in a very immediate way, in a way that I can. So, yeah, I think everyone, all the activists that I know, the academics, the artists that are amongst my circle are all faced with that hypocrisy. You know, you live here, but you're critiquing the country you live in. It pays your bills. You know, you, you're you called to wake up and go and grab a latte and then talk about foreign policy, you know. 
in Starbucks that are also in Guantanamo Bay. You know, like you know, we need to think about and it's that's the hypocrisy is everywhere. I don't mm. think you can escape and it's you go and live in a commune in Tibet, but you know mm. people do do that. Mm. <laughs> Um, we've been talking a lot in the caravan about the intersection of art and activism right. um, and I'm wondering if you think of yourself as an activist and your art as a way of... It's a very broad term isn't it, activism I think it can be quite lazy and reductive as well, you know people share a Russell Brand video and they call themselves activists <laughs> um, so yeah I mean I, I don't use the term to be honest, like I say it is literally as simple as if I see a guy getting the shit kicked out of him in the street, I'm going to try and do something to stop that. And that's it. Whether you want to call that activism, when you want to call that a rebel, whether you want to call it heretic, whatever, that's all I know is that's wrong. Morally, that's not right. Um, and so I just, I, I work around that premise because I know a lot of activists who are charlatans and they're very mouthy on Facebook and Twitter. But when I actually get to know them, they drive, you know, 60,000 pound cars and they're on four holidays a year. You know, where do you get this money from? Um, do you inherit the money or you work in the finance sector? So it kind of, you know, it, it, it all just depends mm. on. But it also seems to me that this is the power of poetry as mm. well as to make us aware and to make us conscious. Of yeah, that's, that's its history, isn't it? Like the whole oral tradition, I'm predating the written word if you go back to the, I mean, hieroglyphs even, or you go to the. Hey, 13th and 14th century in uh, West Africa, the griots of Mali, you would have found the same thing. These were people that were informing a population about things that were going on within the, with the township or within the city. I think one of the great things with poetry that is heightened and it is emotive is that it transcends the rigid political rhetoric that you often find. And people, a lot of the time, people can't really connect with that. But when you use language in this particular way to galvanize and, and to kind of inform, which is what art should be doing, like it most definitely should have that side to it. Um, and we read stories about people, you know, during the transatlantic slave trade, people coming over to Europe from the Caribbean during the Windrush period. We read those stories because we want to know what it was like in the same way we go to art because we want to almost get a different perspective on something. So I think that it's important to have that and not to censor it and people and for artists not to want to censor themselves because a lot of them do for fear of being outcasted or being scorned or whatever by, by general populations and the status quo. There's like a rhythm in your voice and a beat in your voice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm wondering if that came before you started performing. Or <laughs> no, 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 no. I'll break into song in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> Can you read some poems that are that speak to uh, yeah. this, these yeah, yeah, topics yeah, yeah. we're talking about? So I'll read you. Um, I'll read your latest piece that I wrote that kind of looks at two things. It looks at the unlawful killing of of black boys in America by the civil authority um, and it also looks at the refugee crisis that is going on so the poem works in two parts we can have a chat about it mm. afterwards it's called how the sky finds us I ask if I could fit my entire past into your ears would there be enough space in your blood to handle what they did to me is your heart ready now two lovers bounce a kiss off the space between their lips the future is a worn-out promise a fatigued pigeon pushes the broken edge of sky. Newspaper grey dribbles down another hour. Stabbing in fight of lost ground. Hooded youth worn by locust and wasp. Alive to be bullet shot dead. Black gun, white fist. Silver badge of fire and force. Skin the colour of wrong. Graveyards become bedrooms where the young lay their heads down to dream. 
in open spirit the prison of earth melts into stars the sweet and unloved hang like lavaliers around the neck of a tree older than thought we could list them all like door numbers we could list them all like genocide but we won't instead we will march them straight into heaven Trayvon, Eric, John, Michael, Tanisha, Tamir, Mark, Sandra, Stephen and Smiley there is no grave like the ocean paper mouths try to close off the leak quick breathe back the drowning pray away the flood pencil boats snap like rage into shattered fractions a thousand lives break from within it lives so giant and small finding the end of the sea and the top of a headline with eyes still fixed on god council estate manor drawn to rusted meat licking the fat of teeth lager hands hammer beaten by government cutthroat tory blue razors tribal hate march the scum and slag union jacks bursting open the air like death hounding the royal sails of weddings and births blame the white collar of canard and fib old boy body snatchers remain plenty obama death Cameron, death, Bush, death, Blair, death, the dying of life and survival of death, sand graves fresh with innocence, explosions at the door, in the garden, by the sink and in the heart, home is a body you bury, home is a name you choke on, Arafat, Jamal, Samira, Muhammad, Mahmud, Zainab, Ahmed, and so here they kill all the flowers at once all that beauty all that brilliance all that gone two lovers bounce a kiss off the space between their lips the future waits as an unreported oil spill war perverts the lights they did it to her on a sunday in the brightness of her summer dress hand to mouth year to year only her suicide knew a boat rocks still against the blue a flame waves warm under a spoon there's a solitary eagle cruising its altitude like a guard two lovers now contain rain and the sky stays cluttered with gods <laughs> chirpy isn't it <laughs> comedic piece that one <laughs> <laughs> There's such heaviness, and you f you feel everything, the weight of it, with yeah. such depth. Is it, have you always been a, a big feeler? Is that yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not always to not always a good thing though. You know, like I was I was very hypersensitive as a child. Well, not as a child, as, a, as an adult even. And I was constantly told by family and friends, you need to get thick skin. You need to, you know don't be so sensitive and it was it actually increased the sense when people say you don't be sensitive you're like I don't really understand what that means because <laughs> I'm not doing it on purpose like <laughs> things upset me and I can't help that um, and yeah just seeing that like, hearing stories would upset me like you know, someone getting mugged or someone getting stabbed like I grew up in quite a strange part of North London and there was well, fights my friends were always getting in fights and yeah, it just upset me and I think about it for a long time and I always wondered why can he get over it really quickly and I am six months later still thinking about the sound that that knuckle made when it cracked his nose, like why am I still... And that kind of stuff I could never shift. Um, 
And then when I met other artists, I was like, all right, cool, you're like this as well. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> all right, let's hang out, because yeah. we talk about our troubles. It strikes me that everyone probably in this caravan has something to learn about your work and can probably practice um, writing poetry or, or writing story in a way that... I mean, I'm, I'm talking about you as a teacher as well, because what are you teaching people when you go out into universities and as an educator? Well, I think most importantly, to be vulnerable and not to be afraid of being vulnerable or to be sad or to connect yourself with something that is bigger than you and more important than you. Um, I think we live in a post-capitalist age where we're taught we are the centre of everything and the only thing we're really concerned about is ourselves, you know, our careers, our jobs, our friends, our family, our well-being, our peace of mind, which is fine. But there is a world out there that is so far removed from the latest iPhone, you know, or four holidays a year to the Bahamas, whatever it might be. And I think what I try and encourage kids to do is think more plurally, to think in, in ways that, um, you know, that are inclusive, that, you know, think about the guy who just wants to pray over there, but who's not allowed because the media say that him praying is an act of terrorism, you know, it's that kind of stuff that, and a lot of the kids that I teach come from kind of, um, you know, they come from impoverished areas of London, so they're fully aware of what's happening. You know, kids as young as 11, 12, they know what it means to be black, they know what it means to be gay, they know what it means to be uh, Muslim, like all these things they're fully aware of but the teachers that teach them aren't. So that's what I'm saying. Sometimes not all teachers are great, man, and we have to, like, you know, try and do our best to offer an alternative. Mm. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. That was Anthony Anaxagoru in the Dumbo Feather Caravan for the Melbourne Writers' Festival. Get hold of his latest collection of poetry, Heterogenous. Next up is Neil Strauss, chatting with Meliani Javier from Small Giants. So as I said, I'm a huge fan of your work, um, have shared both the game and the truth with many people. Um, and I appreciate your honest and vulnerable, I think quite skillful writing style. Um, I've heard you describe particularly the game and, and the truth as doc documentation of chapters in your life. And I'd like... Right. If we could start, just for those who might not have read um, the books, for you to describe those chapters in your own words. Yeah, and and between them is also a book called Emergency. And so basically, like I kind of, I have a fun job that I kind of design myself, which is I find something that's wrong or not working in my life, and I try to solve it. It's actually not even a book. Usually, it's just something's wrong with me, or my life, or not working out. And I try to fi figure out, as anyone hopefully would, to find out what's someone must know more than me that can help me and sometimes if the journey becomes really amazing or really bizarre or surreal then I decide okay I'm going to dedicate myself to writing a book about this because a I get to solve the problem and make it my full-time job then b if I solve it I get to share the book with other people and it might speak to them and so the game was the problem of loneliness and dating and social interaction and sex and emergency, a lot of, I, I didn't have a, I had a very passive, emotionally disconnected dad, so no one ever fathered me. So a lot of my books, there's always a father figure. It's not intentional in each book. There's mystery in the game. Then I did a book called Emergency, and looking at the state of the world, which is very scary, I thought, I'm just so dependent on a system 
to, you know, if the bank machine isn't working, I'm freaking out. I don't know what I'm going to do or, or for to deliver food to me and, and water. And what if that system breaks down like we saw happen in, in during Hurricane Katrina in the U.S. at least. Like you didn't think you'd see bodies floating down the street in, a, in the States and you didn't think you'd see um, uh, that a government couldn't even, or supposedly this powerful government couldn't even just rescue its own people or save them from a disaster. And, uh, you know, in the way 9-11 changed the world, I thought I'd got to really learn how to take care of myself. And so emergency was learning all those skills. Uh, and then the truth was, okay, I, I can date, I can take care of myself, uh, but I really am hopeless at relationships. Uh, they, I mess them up, every one. And so that was just trying to figure out how to have a relationship. So that's the arc. But I think people put the game and the truth together because they're both about sexuality. But to me, I just see it as a journey to a really, they're all pretty late in life. Like, emergency should have been like a Boy Scouts thing. <laughs> the game should have been over with it like 20, you know? And like, and maybe the truth, I like maybe 5, 10 years ago or something, I should have figured out how to have a healthy relationship. So it's, they're all, hopefully I live long, long so I can <laughs> catch up. <laughs> well, it's, it's interesting because your books kind of um, correlated quite well with the chapters in my own life. Oh, cool. In, yeah, uh -huh. and so um, in reading, when the game came out, I was, I remember being on holidays with my brothers and actually quite a few of their friends and right. they were all passing around the book. Right. And I was like, that sounds disgusting. I don't want to read that. <laughs> and I like poured through it. Right. And by the end of it was just really fascinated by the way that you captured so well this experience of kind of addiction right. and of falling into something and being quite out of control. Right. Yeah. Um, but then also the, the human psychology element yeah. was, was so insightful, yeah. I thought. And um, interestingly, 10 years later, when you've written The Truth, I've found myself and also the, the same people that were reading the game with me um, to be similarly interested in kind of uncovering that stuff. That stuff. Well, it's funny, even some of the pickup artists in the game read the truth and like oh man i've been ha i have the same sort of problems and relationships and my and I, I we have the same family dynamic of a kind of a overwhelming mother figure and absent kind of emotionally absent father figure and i found there was a commonality there and they were struggling with the same stuff um in the truth neil really explores his own family dynamics and the the relationships that um influence i suppose the person that you are today yeah. and in doing that you're uncovering really uncomfortable truths, things right. that people don't want to talk about, yes. particularly your parents. Yeah. And I'm wondering about the casualties of your book. Uh -huh. um, the many casualties. The many casualties. Yes. And if you could talk a little bit about the fallout, how have you managed right. those I mean, relationships? I also, I, I just think, and again, maybe I'm naive in my own way, but I think if you have a loving, connecting relationship with someone, them telling their truth, is okay. When I wrote the game, Mystery, who was the big pickup artist in that, I said, hey, I just want to let you know this book's coming out. It really shows everything. It shows the, you know, suicide attempts and the depression, as well as the, as well as the crazy wild times and the other ideas. And he said, you know, I'm just flattered to be one of the flawed characters you write about. And I thought that was really sort of big. And I've never, and, and however, my mom didn't say that about this book. <laughs> So, uh, so for so for sure. I mean, I think as a writer, you if you're gonna make the choice to write uh, nonfiction and especially kind of memoir-based stuff, you're 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 making the committed choice that you're gonna say 
everything. And because if you hold back, you're robbing the reader of the experience and you shouldn't be writing. Um, and so and so I had discussions beforehand and she did not want to be in the book. Like I, uh, I gave her the option of changing. I could change her name and her identifying stuff so she could tell her friends I made it up. Um, she didn't want me to do that and neither did, did my, but I ha you have to tell your story. And so we don't have a relationship anymore. Mm. But if you read the book, I'm not sure if we had a relationship beforehand. I've never read anything quite so right. open right, right, right. <laughs> and quite so, like I was at, I was saying before, um, I was kind of uncomfortable and, right. and, and you know, cringing. Right. Did he just right. write that? Oh my God, he wrote that, yeah. you know? And I wonder how, where does that bravery come from to do that? Uh, to, well, so it's hard, it, the bravery is to say it to someone in person. It's easy to write it down and because I'll write the book just assuming no one will see it. I just write the book and just get everything down there. I just assume no one, I just tell myself no one's ever going to see this. And, 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 and I kind of write everything because if you start thinking about, you know, this person's going to see it or that person's going to see it or my parents, my wife, my children, whoever you might think or your, whoever's opinion you're scared of, mm -hmm. it's not going to help you be creative. It's going to restrict you and creativity is about expansion and openness. And yeah. But I mean, you're, you're in New York Times bestseller. Right. You, like, you can't really believe that nobody will oh, see when, it. When, when you're writing it, I mean, you, 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 don't ha you don't have those conversations when you're writing it. Yeah. it. It doesn't help you. If this good, are people going to like it? Are people going to be upset by it? They don't help. There's a, pl there's a time for those conversations, but they're not in the creative phase mm -hmm. of doing something. The creative, so for me, when I write a book, the first phase is just get it all out. Get everything that happened out there. It mm -hmm. doesn't have to be good, well-crafted. It's just all in the book. And then somewhere in this mess of pages or this mess of a computer file, the book can be carved out of it, but at least it's all vomited out there. And then the second phase, so the first phase is just for me, I'm getting it all out there. The second phase is for the reader. The second pass through it, I'm thinking, okay, I'm interested in this, but is a reader going to be interested in this? So I'm going to cut this out. This part's boring. This part, like, isn't explained well. This part, so the second thing, I'm trying to make it a good experience for a reader. My, my premise when I write something is always, um, no one, no one gives a fuck about me. No one cares about what I'm writing about. They have zero interest. And but how can I make them interested? So I just assume that no one can. I, I, I start my writing for the premise that no one cares. And how can I begin a story or pull you in? Kind of like you were saying about the game. Not only did you care, but you did not care, but you didn't even like it. You know, <laughs> <laughs> like. And then can can I pull you through a story for however many pages? Maybe four, three hundred fifty or four hundred pages, and hopefully make you sad that it's over. Um, you wanted to, to help men who had had felt a similar way in the world, so it felt isolated mm -hmm. and, and afraid of women, afraid of connection, rather. Um, do you have any hope for the truth? Are you hoping that... So, so, my, so, so my hope for it is that as someone... Two things. One is, as someone's reading my story, they start to see, start to unlock their own family of origin issues and start to realize, oh... I keep getting relationships with someone like this because this is my family pattern and background. Now that I can be aware of this, I can change it. So that's that. Maybe, the tr maybe I'm becoming a better writer because the truth actually I think is being, becoming what I want it to be. I think the only sad thing to me about the truth is that if it, that it's so, it's not really, it's from a guy's point of view, but again, it's really for women and men 100%. And I think even the strongest emails I got have been from uh, from women and I feel like the game makes people who could really use the book uh, who've been cheated on or who cheated and uh, takes a while for them to come around to the book sometimes. You mean uh, people who 
wouldn't read the truth as a result of the fact right. that you wrote the game. Yeah, yeah, or or just think it's not a book for them. Yeah, it's interesting. It's yeah, it's yeah. fascinating. Do you think that it makes them feel exposed? They feel vulnerable, and then they yeah. reading the book. Yeah. Well, you know what? It's funny is some people read. So it's crazy. I gave so the, here's where it failed. I gave the truth to a couple of friends who had similar relationship issues, highly enmeshed, and we can talk about what the word enmeshed means by by a mother or their father. Um, and, uh, and they'd read it through and they'd be like, oh, it's so interesting what happened to you. And I'm like, wait, do you see any of yourself in that <laughs> at all? You know, and I gave it to someone else, one of my friends who's a mega successful best-selling author, does really, really well, but just is always in these bad relationships that he spends more time trying to get out of than he spent getting into it. You know, the people who can never break up, right? <laughs> and they're, they're apart and they're together again. You're like, really, like, just... <laughs> Just draw the line and move on. <laughs> Why can't you just like let each other go, you know? Uh, and he read it and he's like, oh, you got to take out all this. And everything he marked to take out were the exact things he needed to hear most. <laughs> yeah. Wow. It's hard. I think the challenge, the, so the game took like, it took like probably like a year and a half to master the entire game. And, but to, to do the stuff in the truth, like it probably was like five years of research and, and writing. It's probably my longest gap between books because it's so hard to see yourself on that deep level. It's so easy to see what's wrong with everyone else, right? Mm. But it's so hard to see yourself on that deep level because we're so close to ourselves. It's so hard. And Especially we have so many defenses. So many defenses. And like I can spot them in a second. They're fun to do. Here's a good defense. <laughs> like if for readers or if you're talking to a friend, my favorite defense is when someone, when someone general, it's called globalization, when someone generalizes. They're like, well, people always want to do this. Or they'll say you instead of I. They won't own something. Mm. You, you know, when you're like doing this and this, you know, they'll say you instead of I. So. Now that I've pointed out, watch when someone says we when they mean I or you when they mean I. What do you think is the number one thing you need if you really want to change? What's that? Self-reflection. Self-reflection is good. It's something more important. More important than realistic self-reflection. Anyone? Suffering? Well, suffering helps. <laughs> <laughs> it's sad that we need suffering sometimes, but we really do. I think when someone's heart is broken, like now's the time. Get into therapy right now before you're not hurting. Do it while you're desperate for a change, but it's humility. You have to like, it's really hard to say like, oh, my, I'm living my life. This is not working out for me, but I still think somehow I'm right about anything, <laughs> right? So it's like humility is like the total key. And that actually really came through in your story as well. Right. You could see you being beaten with a humility stick. Right. Yeah. Where you first yeah. in the sex addi addiction therapy right. you were... Like, oh, this woman's an idiot, and by the end, you were like... <laughs> yeah, yeah, she like... <laughs> I love you. Rip my soul apart. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah, I love you. Change my yeah. world. The worst uh, it's tangent, but it kind of related, is I, I write for Rolling Stones. So I interview a lot of rock stars, and smart people who become drug addicts are the hardest ones to work with because they're so smart. They can sort of convince you and them that they're okay and rationalize everything in every every way. Like, smart people should never... Like, it is really hard to get a smart person to see that they're addicted and screwing their life up and need to go to rehab and and the, it's crazy yeah I, wrote a, I did a book with dave navarro called don't try this at home which i lived in his house for a year while i was addicted to heroin and basically he was he would shoot up cocaine every 15 minutes and heroin every like four hours it kind of created the right balance wow. and uh it's like swapping ibuprofen and panadol exactly or not <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and, uh <laughs> And, and it was, it was, he just would always rationalize. It was amazing. He would, we had one section, which, uh, which we later took out of the book, was how he's following the 12 steps perfectly while doing drugs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 But how do, you, how do you find something to hang on to in that, right? So when you're in that journey and you're mm -hmm. trying to uncover 
what's right for you. Right. You're so lost. Yeah. And you don't know what the truth is. Right. How do you anchor yourself? Yeah, yeah. No, it's a good, it's a good, uh, it's a good question. I mean, I think if you can find some experts or people you trust to sort of surrender yourself to, it, it's good. But if you're really talking about like change and transformation, I think a few good things. I love group therapy. It's more powerful and statistically they've shown in studies it's better than one-on-one -on -one therapy. And the reason is because if you're across the, if you're talking to a therapist, you can just have a you can just disagree with them. But let's just say we're a group therapy group, all of us sitting on the couch here, mm -hmm. and uh, and you're saying something, and all of us are pointing out this one thing about you. You kind of got to admit that it's right. Yeah, yeah. So so seeing yourself from a bunch of so I think group therapy is great. Uh, I think doing, I think doing an intensive like weekend long or week five day long workshops where you're really like getting really intimate with a group and tearing apart your through your walls. There are a lot of good ones. And what do you think the role of storytelling is in 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 emotional healing? Because I yeah. something that struck me when you were talking before about this kind of compulsion to tell these truths, even though you even though there were many casualties. Um, I wonder whether the compulsion to tell your story is part of the healing. Is, yeah. that, is that something that you think something that you think? Yeah, I think I think it's it's good to tell and it's good to share your story because then you're not locked locked into uh, this secret thing I'm burdened with. Mm. And then also hearing other people's stories and seeing, oh, this is sort of a human thing and I'm not alone with it. I think that's part of the storytelling thing. And the other part is a good a good listener or a good coach or a good therapist is almost like a literary critic of your story. Uh, either the point to an inconsistency. My favorite thing is if someone's telling you something, there's an inconsistency in it you can dive in and find out what the false belief or the or the screwed up thinking is or starting to see a pattern either in someone's life or in their childhood where you can learn something so it's no one's that may not know it's a good observation it really is about storytelling and story listening yeah yeah like people like a lot of people i think i don't know if it's an american thing also here a lot of people want to be a coach to help other people i think it's if people want to help other people that's a good thing but the real skill is listening mm. <laughs> so true. <laughs> and so, now that you're a bit of an expert in love, what can you and relationships? Right. <laughs> what can I tell? <laughs> yes. Uh, I mean, I, I'll tell you the one thing I learned, and then if there's a question, maybe I maybe we can all together as a team help with the question. But I'll tell you the one thing I learned that was kind of counters, which was surprising to me, which was that. The success of the relation, the relationship has nothing to do with the other person, and it has nothing to do with the relationship. It's only about me. It's only about the way I'm relating to the other person. I mean, obviously, the other person's involved, but I mean, it's the success of it is about you and who you are and how you see things and how you choose to relate to them, and that's where the success kind of lies. And the success can be as I going through this growing journey and learning about myself. I see this isn't right for me or we get to connect. I, but I find if there's a problem, again, with the exception of if you're being physically or emotionally abused, when, in which case just get out. But in a relationship, if you start to shift and change, the relationship will change and often that person, you're, it becomes a new relationship. And most of the things in relationships are that when people are complaining about their partners, they're seeing like a skewed reality through their own filter. It's probably not objectively what's going on. You know, there's a it's just so interesting. And whenever someone complains, people meet each other at the same level of emotional maturity. They're, it's not like, oh, 
I'm so great and my, this person's such an idiot and I'm dating this <laughs> idiot and this jerk. It's like, dude, you chose him, so you're equally screwed up just right there. <laughs> or her. Yeah. <laughs> so we can connect with anyone with the right perspective? Well, the an- so, so the answer is, the answer is, here's what I think. I think when you, you know, because you might see someone you're really attracted to, right? And, uh, but then there's no chemistry, right? And it doesn't work out, even though maybe to the eye told you or, 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 or on paper they were good. What I find, what I, here's what I believe, and it's kind of heavy to throw out right away, but I think that the template for your love relationships is set up in childhood. And you're looking for someone, often they're complementary to your childhood woundings, and you're looking for a, there's an exercise, and I wish I knew it by heart because we could actually do it together. You're looking for what, what was it that I needed as a, as a child? For me, I was never understood. It's probably why I write. So I felt like, oh, if somebody, I need someone, who, and then I'll choose someone who kind of doesn't understand me, and if I can get them to understand me, then I'll have healed the past. And that's so often, I think there's a, when you really feel that chemistry and that attraction, it's the childhood wounds, uh, and, 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 and also the positive sides too, uh, you know, in this dance together. Thanks for joining us for the Dumbo Feather podcast. This edited conversation from our caravan conversations at Melbourne Writers Festival was produced by Beth Gibson and Nathan Scalaro. The music you hear is by Dennis Liu. Stay tuned for next month's conversation or hear it first by subscribing to the Dumbo Feather podcast on your favourite pod channel. In the meantime, for more conversations with extraordinary people, subscribe to Dumbo Feather magazine at dumbofeather.com. We deliver worldwide. Thank you.